Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm show, keyboardist, composer, and producer, Danny Thomas, best known as an original and longtime member of Confunction, one of the most successful, distinctive, and flat-out fantastic funk and R&B bands of all time. From 1977's number one R&B smash, Fun, to 1986's number eight hit, Burn in Love, the seven-member Northern California group notched 10, uh, 10 top 25 albums and 17 top 40 singles. Equally adept at funk, catchy soul, and love ballads, other killer tracks included Chase Me, Too Tight, Got to Be Enough, Shake and Dance With Me, Let Me Put Love on Your Mind, Make It Last, Baby I'm Hooked, and Love's Train, which was recently remade into a hit for Bruno Mars' act Silk Sonic. In 2021, Thomas released an autobiography on his career with the band titled My Life and Fun Times with Confunction. Great to have you, Danny. How are you? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful to have you. Cool. Where, where are you today? I see some, uh, you know, record awards back there. Where are you? Well, I'm in my studio at home in, a, in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta. All right. Well, you're just, uh, you know, four hours down the road from me. I'm in Charlotte. Okay. Well, I like Charlotte. Charlotte, beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. And uh, it seems like a lot of the uh, shows, at least nowadays, a lot of the uh, concerts, um, they'll always hit Atlanta, but sometimes they bypass Charlotte. <laughs> I know. I know. But uh, everything's come through Atlanta. I mean, so that's one of the fun things about it here. Yeah, except for the traffic. I don't like that so much. Oh, same here. I hate <laughs> the traffic. That's why I work out my home. So I have it pretty easy. I never leave the house. <laughs> well, it's uh, so good to have you. Thank you for doing this. And, you know, I, I'm wearing this, uh, you know, as a tribute today. I got, you know, Confunctions up here high yeah. on the list of, of groups, as they should be. So, Well, I don't know. Cool. I need one of those. 
<laughs> well, actually, anybody can get one of these at the uh, funkinstuff.net website. So, uh, you know, go there and get your own uh, okay. one of these. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So uh, let's jump in and uh, start, you know, with a rewind and get a little bit of background on you, Danny, on, you know, how uh, way back when you first gravitated to music and, and why keyboards? Well, my sister was a Rhodes Scholar, and she graduated from Fisk University. She played behind the Fisk Jubilee Singers at 16, and at the time, I was three. And I don't really remember this, but my parents tell me that I was on the, pian- on the coffee table pretending like I was playing the piano. And they looked at each other, my mother and father, and said, well, maybe he has it too. And um, the next week, they sent Sherman and Clay Music Store with a truck and told me to pick a piano at three years old. Uh, new piano. I didn't know what I was doing, but I picked one. And the following week, I was taking lessons, piano lessons. It was fun for about a week or two, but it got real old quick when all the rest of my friends got to play baseball and hide and seek and all that. And I had to practice. And, um, but I stuck with it. I didn't give up. The, my, my, my friends used to tease me a little bit and everything. I said, forget y'all. Cause I knew where my, you know, my bread and butter, where my, where my bread was toasted from. Okay. Uh, anyway. Um, and I wanted to make my parents happy. Um, Mother especially, I, I felt at that age um, that they really couldn't afford it. They wasn't rich. My mother did here. My father worked for the um, Mary Island, a shipping yard, a retired serviceman and stuff like that. So, you know, um, I took it personal that they tried to give me something to better myself with. So it took me a few years. To really get into the piano, um, maybe junior high school. I came home one day and and got on the piano and practiced for about five or six hours, nonstop. My parents used to come up. It was cool because my piano was the front of the house and the the den was in the back, long hallway. That so I didn't bother anybody, right? So, but they would check on me, make sure I was okay. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, so I had just music was getting in my blood. I started playing more popular music and stuff. Cause I, you know, I was started off doing uh, classical music, doing recitals and stuff like that, which was good because um, it kept me from stage fright. Because at, at 10, I was doing recitals for 50 to 100 people um, on piano by myself and so it was good practice and everything. So I got to a certain point around junior high school where I was just going to take it on my own and start um, just working by myself. I stopped taking lessons. And um, one thing led to another. Um, actually, my parents hired me and my cousin for my first gig in junior high school. My cousin played the drums. We had some more friends that would come by and pick on the guitar, do a little vocal. So they said, for a Christmas party, we'll hire you guys to play and pay you. We said, for real? And so we practiced. Um, 
got a, a nice little um, song list together and everything. And we did the party, and it was great. Everybody loved it. We had fun, you know, and we got paid. I said, wow, I can get paid for having this much fun? I want to do this some more. So, of course, my cousins wasn't serious about playing music at at that time. So I said, I'm not going to worry about it. Just keep practicing. And when I get to high school, I'll find some serious musicians. And lo and behold, I think the third day of high school in the 10th grade, I was in the piano room in the music class and um, the music building, rather. And I was playing in this little music room by myself. And Mike Cooper stuck his head in the door and said, oh, man, I sure. Uh, how you do that? And so I showed him what I was playing. And then he said, uh, you want to start a band? I said, yeah, let's do it. And that was the beginning. He uh, introduced me to Louis McCall. And then we uh, we met Michael Wilson on bass. And we started a, a four-piece rhythm section at that time. And we did talent shows. And eventually, we ended up playing for high school dance and stuff like that. And, of course, we picked up more members during that time and became Project Soul in high school, the name of the group. And then one thing led to another. Uh, we got a chance to meet with some groups. Um, the Soul Children was the first group that we met out of Stacks in Memphis, Tennessee. Let, let, let me cut you off and jump in a little bit, if I could, Danny. I don't, well, sure. so, apologies. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, so you were about 15 or so when you first met uh, Cooper? Yes. And uh, what were your uh, first impressions of those guys? Oh, well, well, Michael was cool. We became best friends. Matter of fact, I mean, when he bought his first car, I was there. I would. It was a U58 Chevy, I believe it was. And so he would take off. I was watching the, pail, the tailpipe to make sure it wasn't smoking too much and that sort of thing. Actually, he taught me how to drive his three-speed on the on the on the column. Um, during that time in high school. And we was, you know, we have just, our, our love for music and respect for each other really kept the, the whole group together for as many years as we stayed together, I would say. And, and who were some of your early influences and favorites, you know, in terms of other artists? Well, when we, when we first started, we was an instrumental band. We did stuff like Wes Montgomery, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, um, um, excuse them. I'm trying to think of you know different people, but you know it was jazz orientated. And then as we progressed, actually, we rehearsed in my garage, and um, my uh, mother would listen and make comments from time to time. And then one day she came to us and said, "We have to learn how to sing because." Being an instrumental band will only get us so far. We need some vocals. We need to add some vocals to our group. And we said, okay, we thought about it. Well, Michael, he took that to heart. And he started learning songs, started singing. Okay, and then we had to back him up <laughs> with, with vocals. And amazing enough, he could sing. Okay, he had a great voice. And, and so we, one thing led to another. We, 
then the bands that was around us in the Bay Area, um, Tower Power, we um, was interested. We were looking at Stax Records really close. And so we liked that Memphis horn sound and everything. So we immediately, um, uh, we, um, Carl Fuller was a classmate of ours. And we asked him, invited him to be in the group on trumpet. And then we had another friend on saxophone uh, that joined the group and felt him. We wanted to round off the horn section with a trombone. And we did. We felt, matter of fact, Felton played trumpet in his band as well as guitar and keyboards. He had another band. He had his own band as well. But he learned trombone to be able to play with us and Project Soul. So you guys were into jazz and stacks. And, um, you know, I'm guessing also probably people like Earth, Wind & Fire and, you know, right? Oh, yeah, well... Our hometown favorite was Sly and the Family Stone. We came from there. So we definitely got into the funk thing. You know, we started off in jazz, but as we got going, we, um, you know, at the funk, the Earth and the Fire was very um, important in our expression and and as far as was a great um, inspiration to us. And again, we followed those sax artists as well. Yeah, so I always felt like, you know, if I had to pick one group that can function sort of was similar to, I would have said Earth, Wind & Fire, because you had that, you know, bright, horny kind of sound, and, and you had, you know, the, the strength in ballads and the strength in funk and the strength in kind of pop R&B. You had all of it, just kind of like Earth, Wind & Fire did, too. Yes, yes, um, I agree. We, we looked at them very closely. And try to put our own style. You know, we try to keep our own identity, but we did, you know, borrow from people that we liked. Matter of fact, when fun with number one, we knocked Earth and Fire out of the number one spot on on the on the billboards. How cool and is that? That, that was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. So we didn't mention it, uh, Danny, but uh, you you all were from uh, Vallejo, California, specifically. Um, and for those who don't know, that's how far from like San Francisco, would you say? About 30 miles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's the Bay Area and yes. uh, California, um, which, as you said, just such a great, um, you know, late 60s, early 70s hot spot, you know, with Sly and Grand Central Station and Tower Power and and the rock groups, too. You know, Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead. Exactly. Yeah. Every weekend, we used to go to Fillmore West and watch The Who and The Chamber Brothers. Like you say, Santana played there quite often. Um, it was a great place to be at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so early on, you know, did did would you say Michael was uh, the leader uh, pretty much? Or who kind of like was, you know, really the one that kind of set the tone for the group? Well, Michael was the lead vocalist. And everything at the time, I kind of handled the business. I booked the band. I um, made up the contracts. Our first contracts, um, I had our name on it, Project Soul. I actually borrowed a union contract and, and just put our name on it. So I knew all the, the, the T's and the I's were dotted, but I wanted to represent the group. And um, we just um, 
had meetings and we just communicated very well. But uh, I gave Michael credit for really, you know, covering and handling the vocals. And then when Felton added, uh, came into the group, he as well was the lead vocalist as well. He sung. He did everything that Michael didn't do. He covered the high parts and Michael kind of did the, the, the strong tenor parts. Again, you guys completely had your own style and sound, but still it's kind of like uh, Cooper is the Maurice White and, and uh, Felton is the Philip Bailey. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to emulate anyone, what a great model to emulate. So no big deal there. And everyone back then uh-huh. was taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there and putting it together. But most of the groups had their own sound, which was part of what made that era so fantastic too. Yes. Exactly. And by us being, you know, from the Bay Area, we kind of kept the funk in our, you know, in our in our brand, right? And be able to do both, do the the heavy funk stuff and then do balance as well, it kind of separated us apart from a lot of the just say funk bands or the balladeers, you know. Yeah, I'll say I'm going to get more into some specific tracks, but I will say that, you know, Confunction definitely didn't just, you know, do a ballad here or there to do it. You know, you guys did it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so I was going to um, ask, so when you, uh, what would you say was your first show or, you know, event that kind of like, broke the group you know that you guys thought okay this is going to work we're going to make it well that's a good question um it was always a positive progression from us in my garage rehearsing learning songs and um entering talent shows which we were blessed to win most of them and we would take the the prize money and invest back into the group uh, buy better equipment, and you know we just you know wanted to, to have the best sound that we could. Okay, so we was blessed to have some people that really helped us, like um, the Soul Children. When we met them, our manager at the time, Joe Connors, he was a promotional person for Stax Records, and I give I give the broadcast credit. They kind of like open our eyes to a show band because the West Coast bands kind of just stood and just played like Tower Power. You know, they just slapped flat foot and just just jammed, okay? Very powerful band. Okay, now the Bar Cage, when they came to Basin Street West in San Francisco, back when we was in high school, and we were able to open it up for them because we had that little connection. But anytime bands came from Stax Records, we either had back page, backstage pass or we could open up for the group sometimes. And so we had our following because we was pretty hot. We were one of the hot bands in the barrier. So we did our show and we felt good about ourselves and everything. And we had a, everything. So we didn't know what, so we sat back waiting to hear the bar, the famous barcades at that time. So when they came out, they came out high stepping, spinning, spinning their instruments, their trumpets and stuff, and just, um, just show band. I mean, one hundred percent. 
um, the lead singer, you know, um, all of them just put on a fantastic show. Uh, nothing like we had seen before. They had the outfits was coordinated and everything. And so we said, I mean, I might have a blow, to tell you the truth. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I've I, I talked about them in every interview just about. And um, and so after the show, we were able to meet them. They're really nice guys. And they complimented our show as well. But, you know, we told them how much we really enjoyed them. And we went back and rewrote a whole concept. Okay, for so we started working choreography into our show. Um, we we um got our uniforms, you know, and had them kind of coordinated better because normally we were just kind of like playing the street clothes before that. So, but the East Coast vibe, so the East Coast fans put on more of a show atmosphere. They came and they went more so than the West Coast. So we were able to get that East Coast vibe added to our style. And that was a very, to me, dominant changing moment in uh, our development. And then after that, we met Rufus Thomas. Mm -hmm. And we met him at a telethon. But we were just backstage again. We were just there because we had the connection, right? And uh, another rival band was supposed to perform. For him, it was a telethon, at least 10,000 people at this thing. I really believe it was more. And Rufus Thomas came, flew in on a helicopter and landed right by the stage. Popped on stage and said, Guys, ready to go? This moment before he's supposed to perform. And um, the group said, What you want us to play? He said, A funky chicken, of course. And I said, We don't know it. And somebody in our band, I still have today, don't, don't know who did it. Um, we know it. That's our favorite band. That's our favorite song. We play it every week. And so Rufus Thomas said, come on. And so literally, just they grabbed, grabbed their guitars, their trumpets. I stepped behind the keyboard. Louie jumped on the drums. And in moments later, all this happened in like a few minutes. Rufus counted off the song. And we hit the downbeat just like the record because we did, when we did cover song, we tried to emulate the songs as close as possible. That's one of the things that um, helped our popularity. So when people went came to see us, they said we played songs like the record, sounded like the record. So um, we did, we played that song for about five or 10 minutes. And Rufus Thomas left, got on the helicopter, took off. And we were just standing there like, wow, what did what happened? Right? Didn't think too much more about it. Okay. And um, so a year went by, we ran into the soul children again. Now, this is a two-woman, two-man group, dynamic vocalist, a lot of harmony and stuff. And so we was able to learn their show and we played we played for them. At the Oakland Auditorium, and that was a fan. That was a mind blowing experience because all they brought was a drummer. Our manager told them they don't read the baddest band. You don't need to bring no band. We'll learn this show. So they came out, and we did. We learned this show in about a day or two, which was um, um, quite an experience. Because during those days, we couldn't, you know, download an MB3 or nothing like that. They was actually they were literally 
singing those bass parts. Bump, 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 you know, and that sort of thing. But we picked it up and um, we did the show in there and we were like really nervous on that show. But that was at that time our biggest show. Um, about 5,000 people at that one. And um, so we were playing the introduction. So the drummer got off the drums, did a big rim shot, and walked to each one of us. But we were still playing, right? And said, just a gig, man. Don't worry. Just a gig. And he walked to each one of us, man. Don't worry about it. Don't, it's going to be all right. It's just a gig. And got back on the drums, did a bad rim shot, missed the beat. And we are so shocked uh, what this guy was doing and everything. We forgot how nervous he was, and we was able to do a great show. So children loved it. They left and didn't think too much more about it until a couple of years later, they came back uh, to perform at uh, in Oakland. And so we just went and got right up front just to enjoy the show, give the show our support. Because we did like the group. It was a fantastic group. And so Norman West, the leader of the group, he saw us and said, we want you to come backstage after the show. And we did. And this was a Saturday night. He said, we find our band. We want to hire y'all. But can you come back Sunday and talk to our manager, which was Charlie Graciano. I'll never forget it. And so we did. We went back the next week and met with them. And... um. He gave us an offer we couldn't refuse. And so they wanted us to meet them at the Memphis Coliseum, 18,000 seater, and and play behind the Soul Children for a show that had Bobby Womack, The Emotion. Oh, um, the Staple Singers, and another band called the uh, Sons of Slum. They was a uh, Funkadelic clone. They had the weird outfits and everything. And so we were the show band for the Soul Children. And that was a fun tour. That thing went on for about three weeks to a month. And all of a sudden, they, they pulled up off the tour and said, we all flying in to Los Angeles. So nobody didn't, they really didn't tell us anything. We didn't know where we were going. We just got to the, got to the airport, went to the hotel, and, and eventually we made it to the Coliseum. Uh, Rod Stacks was the uh, was one of the biggest concerts at that time. One hundred three thousand people. They had Rufus Thomas, um, The Emotion, Isaac Hayes, the, the whole gamut. Even Richard Pryor was there. Hmm. And so we we knew we were playing for the uh, the Soul Church. And once we got there, at the last minute, we found out we were playing for Rufus Thomas as well. Uh, but as a matter of fact, once we signed with the Soul Children, any concert where Rufus and the Soul Children was at, where Rufus Thomas and the Soul Children was at, he used our band. He didn't take a band. Okay. So that's how we were able to play behind Rufus Thomas at the um, White Stacks uh, concert. And it kind of, he kind of like stole the show. I don't know if you ever seen that. Clifford. Well, yeah, Bar Caves were pretty awesome too, but yeah. Yeah, oh, Bar Caves, always awesome. Yeah, but um, so, and so he really looked out for us. Um, he introduced us to his, his daughter, Carla Thomas, and we did our USO tour, our first USO tour with her in Japan. And 
we were able to make connections in Japan while we was over there. So we ended up touring Japan for the, the following 10 years, at least once a year uh, on our own, uh, just from that connection with Rufus Thomas. So we had, we had a lot of angels watching over us. Did you guys uh, uh, stay living uh, in Northern California, though, or did you ever relocate at some point? No, we moved to Memphis, Tennessee, uh, during the, when we was touring with um, the Soul Children. Uh, that lasted for about seven years. And then we moved back. Hmm. Wow. And um, that was about the same time we got a record deal and everything. Wattstacks, I think, just... Um... Was it 50th anniversary or something like that? They just they put out for the first time earlier this year. I don't know if you saw that, but they put out everything that was recorded during that entire, you know, performance and week for the first time. Like everything is just out in like 12 CDs or something crazy. That's so. great. I've been waiting for them to do something like that. Yeah. That was a phenomenal time and a phenomenal concert. Yeah, it's historic for sure. You're part of a big piece of history right there. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Wow. And you ended up signing to Mercury Records, which is where the Barquets were at that point too. Um yeah. how did how did that come to be? Well, like we um we used to play with the Barcade. We used to open up for them all the time, you know, uh local uh venues around um Memphis and and so when the the Barcades got their record deal. Somebody mentioned their name to us, uh, mentioned us to them, and we ended up signing as well. Hmm. And it was a beautiful thing. Did you have to audition, or you just got signed? We just got signed. Well, we had we had an attorney that was working with Stack. I mean, with Mercury Records. He had a friend there as well. So, you know, we was being presented, you know, several different avenues. And so when they came and Barcades got their attention, okay, so I guess they said they might as well pick us up too while they're there. Well, it was a great label to be on at that time because they also were doing great things with Ohio Players. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. And um, so we had a great time. We recorded about at least four albums with them before uh, Polygram um, with the Mother Country. And uh, I mean Mother uh, a label, and so we ended up doing several records with um, on the Polygram label as well. Do you remember Danny uh, the process of just recording that first record with Mercury? Um, you know what it was like. You know how excited were you guys, and was it stuff you had already in the can, or did you come up with all new stuff? Well, it actually, it was stuff that we had in the can because um, we was had a production studio. And we're recording where we was we signed a production deal with a company called hmm, Freetone, which was owned by the Axtons, people that were actually involved in Stax Records back in the day. And so we had a whole album done. And so that we shot that album to Mercury Records and they accepted it. Okay. Well, that first record, it didn't, you know, do as well as the ones that would come, but you know, all, all the parts were in place, I think for that can function sound, you know, I want to mention a few tracks in particular, um, owe it to myself. Um, tell me that you like it. 
and uh, Sure Enough Feels Good, uh, which was a single. Uh, those are all great can function funk and then ballads like never be the same and another world, you know? Yeah. And a matter of fact, we did a tambourine man, a, a cover of uh, John Dillon's song. And in certain places, it was a hit like in Washington, DC. We went uh, to the concert at the, um, I think it was the, um, Skip the name of the, they had the name of the Coliseum at the time. It was for, anyway, um, everyone had tambourines and we did our little set. We played tambourine, man. It was like 50,000 tambourines and whistles in the audience, uh, which was a blast. Mm -hmm. Well, so after that record, um, didn't, you know, maybe chart and do as well as you had hoped. Did you guys feel discouraged at all? Uh, and did you feel like, you know, you really wanted to knock it out of the park with secrets? Oh, yeah. Well, the second one, we uh, were able to team up with Skip Scarborough, uh, famous producer, you know, he produced uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, uh, L LTD, and just a bunch of people had a great, and just a great guy. So so we were, we were uh, looking forward to coming very strong with that with that second album which most people think was the first album <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's the one that made some noise yeah i think they they spent a little more time putting a nice cover together for you guys with the vault and you know and all that and um you remember the the picture with the big bank bank vault and you guys are kind of coming out of it and oh yeah oh i got around the, on on the wall here somewhere oh yeah but, i see uh, behind you i see behind you that's right oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we had um, we had a uh, budget for that album. The first one was a, a shoestring budget that we had, which was a door opener, basically. It was a blessing to have. I mean, like, we were recording with some guys, other groups at that time, that had sponsors and managers and everything. They were, but And we were just, like, doing little gigs, just making it, you know? And but we were able to come out with a, a great record project and a deal. Yeah. Now the way I became acquainted with the group, like so many, was you know, and fun. I uh, hit the airwaves, and uh, it was just uh, undeniably a great, catchy track. And it was funky, but still catchy. You know, it had that hook. And uh, do you remember? Um, especially I love the way it begins, you know, it's just that groove. Do you remember like when you guys first kind of came up with that and did you think it was going to be a hit? Now, which one was that? Fun. Oh, <laughs> but actually we didn't know it was going to be a hit, you know, because the record company, no one picked uh, a single off of that album. They released the whole album. And for that reason, because they couldn't pick a hit off of it for some reason, and they decided to let the, the radio pick the hit. And so the radio gravitated to fun. And once that happened, it was over with. You know, it was just, it became our national anthem, <laughs> became our anthem. Okay. And um, it just took off. It's the way it opens with that groove and Michael doing his little yelps and, uh, 
and then the horns kicking in and just uh and then it also ends where they strip away the some of the tracks kind of like the way shining star ended for earth wind and fire yeah yeah it was it was definitely a um a song that established us and our groove as a, a funk and a hard-hitting band with a lot of horns the horns yeah really, uh, yeah yeah, horns were really uh, bright and brassy in the mix uh, on that. And, and the chorus, you know, it was almost like a little Beach Boys-ish, kind of like Beach Boys-ish kind of uh, vibe meeting the funk, you know? Yes, yes. It's, it was, I mean, like, we were so in awe during that session while we were recording those songs that we were just putting everything we had into it and and hoping for the best, praying for the best. Well, I heard that. Then when I got the album and I heard Confunctionize You, I was like, oh, my God, this is serious funk. Confunctionize You, still one of my very favorites. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, me too. I, I like that Confunctionize You. Um, it was um, a good time for us. You know, th that whole run, uh, we had... Everyone was writing, everyone was participating in the, um, you know, like the production sort of way. Like Skip Scarborough, he was in charge of everything, right? But we, you know, we did, uh, <clears throat> we demoed our songs out before we went to the studio. And so we had a good vibe of what we were going to do when we went in. And, um, and everything came together. And, and, as, and as good as that album was and those hits were, I felt like the next one, Love Shine, uh, had like a maturity. You guys were like growing. I could sense that, you know, some of the compositions were yeah. a little more like fleshed out. Mm -hmm. And I felt like beginning to end, it was a little more consistent. Yes. Yeah. Um, I give Skip Scarfield credit for a lot of that because, you know, he got to know us and we got to know him. And and as we, as we continue to write, you know, our writing kind of just, improved you know got a little bit more serious of course so easy and uh, she can dance with me were hits um make it last just a great ballad and um when the feeling's right was one of those tracks in particular that i felt like you guys really stretched out you mm -hmm. know and did some interesting things yeah that was a good one um that was a nice fun song you know trying to just keep it upbeat you know and, and keep it make keep it funky And then for me, that album was like a stepping stone to like the strongest confunction album of them all from my perspective is Candy. Hmm. Uh, great choice. Yeah, we had, um, that was um, a great project as well. We had a lot of good songs on that album. Yeah. I agree if you told. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, even with what had preceded it, when I first heard Chase Me, I was just blown away, you know? Um, yeah. Wow, that and then the ballad, um, Let Me Put Love on Your Mind, uh, just phenomenal. Yes, that's one of my favorite songs still today. Um, both of them, really. Uh, but the ballad, the, the guitar work uh, on Let Me Put Love, you know, and just Michael screaming his head off on <laughs> uh, It's awesome, awesome work. And we were able to get a little funk in there, too, you know? We were able to uh, keep the funk going. Well, it's funny because when I had spoken to, I think it was Felton um, a while back, 
you know, I always thought that Chase Me, the chorus, reminded me of Isley Brothers, you know, at that time. And then he told me that um, the ballad was influenced by the Isley Brothers. Let me put love on your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but the, that rock guitar, that, you know, um, rock soulful guitar, you know, it definitely was um, was inspired by the Isley Brothers. They um, had a lot of influence on us as well. Did you guys ever do any shows with them? Oh, yeah. Many shows. Matter of fact, they had some of the best tours out at the time because we all had great after parties. You know, um, um, they have a big ballroom after every show, and we did quite a few shows with them, you know, for a few years. And um, there was always a party, plenty of eats, you know, drinks, a lot of fun people was invited, and um, it was... I think brothers knew how to do it. They were living large for sure back then. Yeah. And their and their, and their uh, attire was something else too. Oh yeah. Their well, wardrobe. Yeah. They had different influences because um uh, the guitar player, you know, he came from the you know from that um age of um, Jimi Hendrix style. Okay, and that really flipped the group. That really just you know made it exciting. Danny, were there some other uh, like keyboard peers back then that you really kind of admired or looked up to? Anybody like, um, I don't know, from Stevie Wonder to Chris Jasper to whoever? Oh, Stevie, George Duke. Um, of course, um, Herbie. You know, we worked with Herbie in the same studio for CBS Studio. We recorded at CBS Studio in San Francisco and um, I heard him made a comment in a in a interview that funk was very intricate to him because anybody could play a bunch of notes, okay, but to be simple and funky was very was not easy to do, okay. And he gave he gave a lot of credibility to funk musicians. I always liked him for that because <laughs> he can be funky as well. I mean. We tried again to play on one of our shows, but I mean on one of our, on one of our songs, but um, he was a little expensive, you know, for us at that time. Actually, I don't think he was really interested in it, so he he priced himself out of the ballpark. <laughs> but I'm not mad at him, you know. He's a great guy. What was uh, so you know around the time of uh, um, Candy and a couple records after you guys were at your peak in terms of commercial success. What were um what was life like on the road for Confunction back then? Fun, fun, fun. <laughs> Never a dull moment. Um, we had some great tours. They were planned awesome. You know, we um we'd have breaks and have time to really you know didn't get burned out like a lot of groups do do when they go on the road. And so um, it was just an awesome time. You know, we go into a town and you know um. Everybody's expecting us. They're treating us. You know, we got the key to the city, and you know, it's just it's a wonderful life. <laughs> you know, a hit record. It's a great. It's a great time in your life when you have a hit record, and and people. Um, and we try to, you know, we carried ourselves as respectable young men. You know, we didn't. Um, we was we had a reputation of. Being, you know, like role models almost. Okay, we wasn't that 
crazy musicians that, uh, well, I wouldn't say role models, but something, you know, you wouldn't mind your daughter dating one of a guy, you know, one of us, because we carried ourselves pretty cool and stuff like that. So, um, didn't have any problems at all. Very few problems that I can think of. Believe it or not. <laughs> and how much fun did you have uh, getting to, you know, go on Soul Train and shows like that? And... Oh, it was a blast. It was a blast. Soul Train was definitely top on our list, but Solid Gold wasn't bad either. But the Solid Gold dancer, you know, and, and Dick Clark, um, American Bandstand, I mean, that guy never got old. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing, you know, but um, in concert was fun. He was able to um, to um, perform on that uh, program as well. So, but Soul Train was just, um, I guess, so much energy, you know, and everybody was into the music and uh, and Don Cornelius, he was such a class act. You know, he really was, really made you feel uh, welcome, you know, and I, I really miss him still today. Mm -hmm. Definitely a gentleman. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned American Bands. And Danny, I watched this past week the clip of you guys actually being interviewed on that by Dick Clark. And uh, I think you said that you liked racquetball or something like that. Or I love racquetball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I even turned the drummer, uh, Louis McCall, into uh, I turned him on to racquetball. And he loved it as well. And I, and, um, I did have fun beating him, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, those were the days. We used to go around, and if we had some spare time, we'd go to uh, a YMCA or something like that and play. I had the chance to play at uh, Howard uh, University at their gym, at their courts, play some racquetball there and different places, yeah. And, well, and watching that too, I mean, it sounds like, you know, that the group was pretty, um, like you said, I don't know, role model or respectable gentleman, you know, like um, kind of good, clean, fun living mostly, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah, we... Uh... You know, we come from a little town. Uh, most of them come out of Vallejo, California, which is a little country town. Um, suburbs from um, San Francisco. So we're just clean cut guys. Um, um, I I um, give my parents and all of our parents, all, our parents are all friends. They all kind of, you know, they all backed the group and they backed us and you know, like Cedric's father was in the military, he was in the Air Force, so he was a disciplinarian, you know. He didn't joke around, and um, uh, my mother, she didn't, you know, <laughs> stamp any foolishness as well as all the, all the, all the parents. Um, we had a good training, we grew up um, with a good role model. So uh, we were blessed as a group, I would say. Do you know if any footage exists of you guys playing live from, you know, the late 70s? Because, you know, like those TV shows are kind of lip sync performances, but um, it'd be so great to see an actual show from back then. Do you know if anything exists? Well, In Concert have some clips of us. We did a 45-minute show of In Concert, and I would love to see that again. 
I got some steel shots from a from a black concert as well. But uh, no, I don't. I, I that's a good that's a good uh, good thought. We have to look into that. Trying to find some footage from uh, in concert. Yeah, well, even just from the um, clips that are go to the record, I think you yeah. can tell that the group just had energy and had so much fun uh, performing, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When, when we first, our first show, when we opened up for um, the Commodore, we were young and crazy. We, we, had, uh, we had to smoke. We had trumpet with, we had everything. We had the smoke, we had the flash pots. Okay, we would blow the stage up. We had a car with, car full of our trumpet player. He would shoot people with his trumpet. And we would fall out and then come back alive again. It was just, oh, we put on the show. Yeah. <laughs> and we, like I said, we, ne we never, we continued to have the dance routines. You know, we tried to, be uniformed and uh, we were blessed to have some great um, um, people that did our wardrobe. Okay, um, uh, it was top notch um, designer and stuff like that. Our management, they took care of everything for us. We had uh, Taurus Production, was our managers at the time, and they took very good care of us. Taurus Production, Quentin Perry, and uh, Clarence Jones. I commend them still today. Yeah. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.